Welcome to episode 23 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I'm joined by some new friends. So here we are in the woods on a dark, wet and windy night. Although the wind's died down now, the hasn't it? Has gone. Conveniently. Yeah. Um, we're in the middle of a Bushcraft Essentials course and we've got five keen young gentlemen here who've joined me in the woods, joined me in Spoons and Matt for uh, a weekend of Bushcraft. And they have brought questions with them, armed with incisive, cutting edge questions for me. So. Without further ado, who wants to ask the first question? Can I ask a, a question? Yeah. Um, we've been using Mora knives, mm -hmm. um, um, basic knives, uh, learning the technique about them. I heard that uh, Mora are bringing out a new knife, which is a full tang knife, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which they've, I don't think, is it the Garbang or something? Garberg, that's right. Um, in, in terms of what you would carry, if you were to carry one knife, would it always be a full tang knife? Um, and, and secondly, I believe it's only available in stainless steel, right. high carbon stainless steel. Would that worry you at all? Some people like stainless knives and some people don't mind. So you're saying high carbon or it's stainless? A, it's supposed to be a high carbon stainless steel, which okay. which Mora seem to well say that they specialise in. Mm. So it's their norm. Is it their normal carbon? Because I don't know the technical details. I, I, I don't it's know. It's their normal stainless steel, apparently. Okay, right. Well, I've used the the Mora Clipper in stainless, and it works quite nicely. It sharpens up quite well. So I okay. certainly I'll, I'll certainly have a go with it because it's got potential. I think the um, the full tang is. A useful thing because we really like Moras. We use them on the courses. We give them out to people on courses. You guys have all got one today, and there's one issue that I have with them, which is that they sometimes break. The only way that we've ever seen them break is when we've been battening with them, or when clients have been battening with them. And you speak to Mora, and they say, "Well, they're not designed for that," and that's fair enough. And you know, most of the time they don't break. But what? can happen because they're a tab tang they're not a full tang that just goes in about a third of the way and it tapers in a little bit and then just stops the tang itself sometimes just shears and I think that's probably you know just a, a function of metallurgy so whether or not that continues to happen with the, the full tang but at least it's a thicker piece of metal so maybe yeah. maybe not and um, but the other thing that once it does break it just comes away from the handle, the plastic cracks, and right. then it's broken. It's so you you can't really do a lot with it. So I think that the full, if you know, a full tang version of a very similar knife, you know, at not much more cost, has got great potential because yeah. it's going to be, you know, theoretically a lot stronger, but have all the benefits that we yeah. enjoy from a from the Mora as well. well. I've heard about it. It's quite a bit more expensive. Right. It's, about, it's going to market at about hundred dollars US. Right. Okay. Which is quite a bit it's more significantly expensive. more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of the some of the Moras are more than the Mora Clippers already. You know, the yeah. Mora Strong's a bit more, and then there's the, they've done the black, and they've done various different sort of bushcraft versions, and you yeah. know, they're starting to get into the like twenty and thirty sort of pound mark. So yeah, yeah that's still a bit more at that's the current quite, exchange yeah. rate. Um, but then there's going to be, I guess, significantly more metal in it. Um, 
to, to be a full tang and to yeah. have strength. So, so yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll probably yeah. get one at some point and give it a go because it's it's going to be a popular knife. Yeah. Um, I haven't tried it yet myself, but I think theoretically it, it, it's, it stands to reason as to why they've done that. Um, yeah. And certainly in my experience, the, the one failing really of the Moro knives that we've used in the way that we use them is that they break. Um, yeah. The handle comes away from the tab tang or the, ta the tang itself breaks. So. Okay. But that's not many of them, that's a small percentage, maybe one or two percent of the knives do that. So. Okay. Yeah. In battening, which is really abusing them slightly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, cool. Good question. Yeah. Cheers. Who else has got a question? I've got a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that came out of today was um, working out what, what temperature it is and having the right type of layers on mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. type of um, activity you're doing. I was just wondering, obviously, you know when it gets down to zero, things start to freeze. But when you're on your um, sort of Arctic trips, um, what sort of bushcraft techniques are there to work out how much below zero it is? Okay, um, so exactly or just, just in terms of what you should be wearing at a particular just, point in time know, or to work out um, I guess based on how much moisture you can see in the air yeah so so what indicators are yeah. there as to what the temperature are to when how it, seriously yeah. cold okay, it is okay right, right well if we're assuming it's sub-zero already are we or yeah, yeah. Okay. Without, quick, without yeah so the first the first thing you'll notice in a snowy environment is whether or not the snow is quiet or if it starts to squeak when you walk on it yeah. So in area, particularly you know, where, where you might have a slightly established trail of tracks, um, as soon as you start walking on it, if it's a little bit frozen, if it's squeaky under your boots, it's probably at least minus 10. Above, between minus 10 and zero, it tends to be quite quiet um, and just sound like you know, snow, if you like. But it starts to sound a little bit more like polystyrene, rubbing on polystyrene. As you walk around on it, as it get as it gets colder, it tends to squeak around more. Um, you know, so if you walk out of a hut in the morning and it's you know you're on the deck out outside of a cabin and it's squeaking like that, you know it's cold. And then you feel the cold air in your nose. Um, similarly, if you're on snowshoes, you know if you're in a heated tent and you get out the the tent in the morning and you, the, there'll be a layer. You'll have trampled a platform. Put put the tent on part of the platform. And once it's frozen, you'd be able to walk around with it on your boots, with your boots on, and you might hear that squeak. But also, when you put your snowshoes on to go off up some of the maybe some of the side trails to where you've been collecting wood, that will be definitely more squeaky than than it is when it's warm. When it's warmer, it's softer, it, it's more pliable, it doesn't make as much noise. So the noise of the snow when you're walking on, on it under certain circumstances can give you some indication. Um, how it feels in your nose, that's partly experience, but I remember when I first went up to Northern Sweden with one of my friends, he got up very early because we were all staying in one room and everybody was snoring and he woke up and he went out for a bit of a walk around. We were only staying near to the road, it was sort of a motel. But when we'd arrived, it was quite mild. I think it was about minus nine or something. But in the morning, it was about minus 22. And he went out and he came back in and it was like, oh, my nostrils are all kind of frozen. You know, all the kind of, all the hairs in his nose had kind of frozen with his, you know, with his snot and it, it kind of taken them aback. And so there's things like that, that, that you can, um, you know, just how it feels, how sharp it feels on your nose. Um, then there's other things that you notice when, I think the, the more, the more important thing to notice is when the temperature is changing. So some of those, some of those things are kind of like lines in the sand, as it were. 
but when the temperature is changing there are other things that you notice so for example um, you start to feel like you know we talked about on the board didn't we today we talked about different methods of heat loss yeah. you start to notice that you, you you feel like the heat's been sucked out of you as the temperature drops down certainly I feel it on my shoulders all of a sudden I feel like you know there's like heat coming out of my shoulders I feel like I'm becoming very cold on my shoulders when I don't normally and that's normally when it gets down to maybe about minus 20 25 something like that wearing something that I was comfortable sort of minus 10 minus 15 start to feel like the the, the heat's been sucked out of me not everywhere but I'm, I notice it more on the top of my body which I, I don't notice at other temperatures you know even a cold windy day here I, you just feel generally a bit chilly, you know, you know, the wind's blowing across your legs and everywhere and around your neck and you just feel a bit chilly. Whereas there's something very specific for me that I feel like that the heat's been sort of sucked out below a certain temperature. Now that's a personal thing to me and then you feel the, you know, how it feels on your breath. But there are practical things you notice, like if you have a fire and it's getting colder, we talked about cold air pushing down, didn't we, earlier today yeah. when we talked about shelters and what have you. You can actually see that. You'll actually see the smoke go up and then it almost like hits a wall and it'll go sideways, like the straight line. And you can see it, particularly if you camp near a lake or a, a part of a river, where the cold air will be pushing down onto the river. You can, you'll see the smoke come out, drift from your camp, and then where the air's pushing down, you can see it's almost like there's a, an invisible ceiling there and the smoke will just go along under this cold air that's coming, coming down. So that's a real sign that it's getting, it's, it's getting colder and it's going to get colder, is that you can actually see the air pushing down on the smoke. And then another thing that you, you notice as well when it gets at night, when it's really cold, is the trees start to crack. You can hear visible, uh, hear visible audible cracks from the pine trees. They'll go crack, pop this, feel like, it sounds like they're popping off in the distance. Like, not a creak, it's a very definite sharp crack. Now, I don't know if it's sap freezing or if it's just different differential kind of as things expand and contract and they crack against each other. But it's something that happens around about sort of minus 30 in sort of open pine woods in, in, in certainly in the north of Scandinavia. That's something that we've noticed consistently as it gets down to that sort of temperature. So there's those, those sorts of things, those sorts of things as well. And then also just, I think the other thing in general that you have to adjust for is that like today, we might get a bit chilly for five minutes because we've stopped and maybe we were working hard and now we've cooled down a bit or the wind's blowing through it was really quite gusty early on and it was, the wind was quite biting um but we're kind of used to working through that i mean i can see you're used to working through it you get a bit cold but you don't really change you don't suddenly change your jumper and you're just like i'm a bit cold now i'm working hard now i'm warm now i take my jacket off and you know we all do that but in co much colder conditions you've got to you've got to recognize it almost earlier because you here you kind of get a bit chilly but you don't go too far whereas there you get a bit chilly but that's the top of a much deeper curve because the the environment's colder and if you continue down that curve unchecked you get to you get too cold you get problematically cold quite quickly and start having problems with your hands and your feet and that sort of thing so it's almost like you have to readjust the sensitivity to fine-tune your temperature more not get too hot and then a little bit sweaty as soon as you start to feel like your hands are getting a bit cold or your feet are a bit cold do something about it you know put a hat on put another layer on um, move around more because uh, more than you do here here we can get away with a little bit more variability in our temperature because the extreme is not so 
so far and particularly when it comes to you know cold injuries you need to be you need to be careful with that so it's a little bit potted but the sort of things that I've observed over the over the years cool. anything else chaps yeah, Sam. Aside from boiling and chlorine, are there other ways when you're outdoors to purify water, possibly by natural means or <coughs> improvisation? Yeah, well there are some improvised methods which can be used but they're not 100% um, sure that they're going to work. I mean, fundamentally you've got five things you really need to worry about with, with water. Um, three of them are types of pathogenic organisms, so bacteria, viruses, protozoa. So um, protozoa are things like Giardia and Cryptosporidium and things like that, and they're quite big for microorganisms. Yeah. Bacteria are smaller, viruses are absolutely minuscule, but most viruses tend to be attached to something else. Um, you know, they're either being hosted by a bacteria or they're on dirt or they're, they're not just free living, you know, they're not that type of entity. So even though they're very, very small in themselves, you often can get rid of them because they're, you know, part of something else, either dirt or bacteria or what have you. Um, although not necessarily. So filtering is, a, is, is one way. If you can kind of filter some of that stuff out, um, then potentially. Um, but before we kind of get on to full solutions, the other things you need to worry about are, are chemicals, so uh, pol pollution in, in, you know, heavy metals or pesticides or any chemicals that are in the water that shouldn't be in the water. And, and that could be the result of mining, it could be natural, it could be agriculture or industry or, or you know, any number of reasons. Um, and then the other thing is just turbidity, it's just suspended matter, whether it's you know, leaves breaking down or silt or what have you, because that in itself can irritate your stomach and give you diarrhea and what have you. So those are the five things that you need to worry about. So once you know what you need to worry about, you can start to come up with some strategies to, to deal with it. Um, now filtration will get rid of you know, coarse filtration will get rid of the suspended matter normally. Um, you need much finer filtration to get rid of protozoa and, and bacteria. Um, and that's why typically you use sort of pumps and those sorts of things, the catadin pumps and similar, um, MSR as well. And then the chemicals are harder to get rid of. They're, they generally need something like an activated carbon filter to, to, to take the same sort of technologies you get in gas masks to take those chemicals out of them. Um, but in terms of improvising something like that, the classic thing is to take, you know, like a Coke bottle, like a plastic Coke bottle, cut off the bottom and then put layers of, you know, charcoal and sand and, th and stuff that's going to, you know, whatever's around so that you can put the water through it, it will drip through it and some of that stuff you know through a kind of improvised coarse filter and improvised as fine as you can make it filter you know sometimes people will put moss in there sphagnum moss for example has some antiseptic qualities so that's you know it's good for wound dressings but you can also use an improvised water filter so if you had um, you know sphagnum moss and some sand and then some charcoal and then some sand and drip water through it you might not get rid of everything but it's much better than just drinking it on its own so yeah you can do things like that um, but it, it, it's not going to be as certain as using a more um, more precise approach, if you see what I mean. Um, boiling is still by far and away the best simple field method. So as long as you've got some sort of metal container, ideally, it's very, very easy then to make sure your water is clean. Um, 
alternatively you can make containers bark containers for example and then you can heat rocks if you can make a fire you can heat rocks keep adding those rocks to the container until the water comes to a heat where you've killed off the pathogenic organisms at least and that's between 70 you know above about 72 you'll kill most things um, and that but the reason we bring things to a rolling boil is because we can visibly see we've got it to a temperature where everything's dead actually things are, are dead a, a bit below that but you can't see you know you can't see whether it's 70 or 80 or 90 by looking at it but once it's boiling and rolling you can see that it's 100 at, at sea level of course as you go up the mountains it boils slightly slightly lower temperatures if you were to boil a water at the, at the top of Everest it would boil at about 72 um, but even there you'd, you'd kill pretty much everything off so so yeah so boiling you know there are improvised methods of boiling metal tin is generally the best and then there are other improvised methods of filtration which have worked for some people in in the past so. and always choose the clean the visibly cleanest source even though you're you know you can look at a stream and go well, that looks clean you don't know that there aren't microscopic organisms in there because by definition they're microscopic you need a microscope to see them but still it's better than choosing the really stinky dirty looking water so always try and choose the cleanest looking source and then use the method that you've got available to you so, good question yeah. a lot of detail came out that one yeah. <laughs> I've got a question about tarps yep obviously we're using the Australian hoochie on the course mm -hmm. which is the square cut tarp mm -hmm. uh, somebody who's thinking of purchasing a tarp What's the difference between that and something like the Hilleberg XP10 with a catenary cut? Mm -hmm. How yeah. does that affect things and which one's best for bushcraft? I think the practical difference is, you know, today I was showing you how you have to, to get the best even pull across the sheet with a square edge, you have to really be quite precise with the angle of the guy line so that you get an even, yep. you know, it's just basic vectors. If you remember vectors from school, yeah, you, you're splitting the angle in half and therefore you're splitting the pull in half and as soon as you move it around you're going to change you're going to get more on one edge or more on the other what I found with um, tarps like the XP10 um, where you've got more of a curved cut on the on the panels um, where you've got more of a sort of a parabola or a catenary shape to them they're more forgiving with the angles that you can pull on and keep the keep the tarp sheets taut um, whether there's a more technical answer than that, um, there might be, but that's my practical experience. You can vary the angle that you're pulling to whatever you're tying off to without getting a, an immediate sag in a way that you can't with a square cut. So to me, that's the advantage of those more sophisticated shapes. So. Only things I've read on internet forums, but a lot of them have said that you need to use six guy lines with a cat cut to get up properly. Well, the, the, the XP10 has got six attachment points other than the, the, the ridgeline ones, and I typically only use four. But yeah, I mean, what you can do with, so for example, with a lot, the XP10 is a bit bigger than the, the Hoochies, it's probably about twice as big. And so what you get then is you might not get the water running off where you want it. So what I'll sometimes do is maybe I want the water running off in the middle rather than the edge for some reason. If I then bring the middle guy line down at a steeper angle and pin it down close, that then funnels the water to that point. Or I might want to have it slightly higher so it sheds it one way or the other. So I, I tend to use it to adjust where the water goes 
in that sense you know I can shift it to one side shift it to the other I've never found a particular problem with with the Hilleberg XP10 in particular I've never found a particular problem with pinning it just with the four corners to be honest with you um, most of the other lightweight types I've got are more square like the, the the MEC Scout one that I use which I really like that's a silicon nylon that's just a square cut top and you just follow the process that I showed you today and it works mm. absolutely fine so um, it's possible that some have got more extreme curves on the panels and you do need to use all the attachment points to, to get it exactly tight but that's not my experience with the Hilleberg one so I can only speak for what I've used and that's that's the main one that I've used that's that shape. So, so don't let the cat cook put you off? Is no, I don't think so, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, cool. Any questions? Any more questions? Can I ask one? Yeah. The, the psychological impact of a survival situation, particularly for a group, mm -hmm. um, when they've come across some kind of major problem, um, how important do you think it is to kind of keep morale within a group that are facing difficulties um, high and um, have you ever been in that kind of situation yourself and um, and how would you deal with it if you were leading a group that was in a you know a very difficult situation as mm. on a course on a course or a yeah, trip well, not, not that we are here but no. You know, if you if you were when you on any trips you do in various parts of the world. Well, it's always a possibility that there's an accident or something happens. Um, but generally, yeah, I mean, it, it it's it's very important. You know, you speak to people who've been in difficult situations, or you speak to people who've studied survival situations, survival psychology. Morale is extremely important. Most of most of the survival skill that you need is what goes on up here the practical skills are really really important but there are plenty of people who've had a really strong will to survive really strong will to live who've got through very difficult situations with minimal survival training in terms of practical skills and it's it's largely about the will to to get through it um, you know having strong family ties or strong faith whether that's in religious faith or faith in a particular philosophy or faith you know something to attach themselves to that's going to help them get through it that's very very important and that's all psychological so i think you know high morale and you know a strong will to go on are very very important and yeah i mean that can that can be difficult to achieve in a group that is thrown together um, sometimes natural leaders come out sometimes sometimes they don't um, in terms of a, a trip yeah, I mean it, it's largely it should be the leaders responsibility to try and get people through but clearly there's always a possibility that the leaders injured for example and then the things are a lot more open to question as to how they develop after that um, but in terms of my own experience there are lots of little things that you think about you know where people get cold and wet and if you didn't deal with it it would become a bigger problem um, you don't want things to escalate to a point where they are a serious serious situation and 
um, I think one of the jobs of, as, a, as an outdoor leader is to notice those things before they become a problem. So perhaps if you've got somebody in your care, if they're out on their own, they might deteriorate. You know, we can talk about hypothermia, for example. They might deteriorate to a point where they become a casualty, whereas if they're with somebody who is more experienced, that person may spot it. It's always easier to spot in other people anyway. And an, an experienced outdoor leader, for example, should notice, say, you know, we talked about you know, before getting into that sort of NATO position, crossing your arms, feet look, looking a bit more fetal, you know that person's becoming a little cold, even if they don't really recognise it themselves. Um, people going pale, going a bit grey around the going around the eyes. Um, those sorts of things really are noticeable. Um, also, if they're normally quite chatty and they go quiet, that can be quite noticeable. Or the the reverse can affect can happen as well, where they're they're almost behaving like they're drunk you know they've lost their inhibition so those changes you know something's going on with them that can be hard when you first work with a group because you don't really know them but you know the physiological um signs you're going to notice you know where you know you see them go pale or they're they've got you know they look like gray and sunken around the, the edges a little bit you know and i've seen that with people you can start to you can see them getting cold and you need to do something about it you need to get hot drinks in terms of sugar and then more complex carbs get more get them into a shelter or get you know warm clothes onto them and and, and your job partly is to is to deal with that when it happens if it happens you, you want to try and avoid the situations where that even becomes an issue but sometimes you're out in the rain all day and people have different abilities to stay warm people have different reserves people have different fitness levels so you need to sort of monitor that as you go some people can keep going a lot longer like ian who was here earlier who's gone i know he gets to a certain point where he, you need to kind of give him food because he just goes a bit he goes a bit funny whereas other people like spoons you'll go a lot longer just all day because you're used to working outdoors you know your your other employment is is outdoors and you're used to just working hard all day and then you eat a lot in the evening so it's also what people are used to you know when you put together in a group you're sort of enforcing a routine on people which might be quite similar to some people's routine very different to other people's routine so even those simple things can have more of an effect on some people than others so you want to try and notice those things um, in terms of accidents i've only ever had to deal with one serious accident on a trip and that was when i was working with my previous employer where a guy um we out on a snow machine trip as part of a an arctic uh, course and it was very close to the end of the day we came over um a forest ride down the other side down this little track went into the soft snow powered out of it um, and skidded and basically hit into a tree um, I won't go into lots of detail but basically both guys on that snow machine were hospitalized required air ambulance evacuation bringing in we had to get a, um, actually one of the students in the end who's quite capable on motorbikes and what have you he volunteered he'd been very good on the snow machines he volunteered to go out to the roadhead to bring paramedic in from an ambulance um, we got other people lighting the fire just to kind of keep them occupied and keep them warm other people two casualties were on top of each other one of them both of them had were complaining of pains in their back so we didn't want to move them um, the air ambulance landed on the track in the woods in the dark with pine trees either side snow everywhere we got one of the guys out of there um, the other guy was taken out by snow machine to the ambulance um, and I was the only member of staff there other than the snow machine guide who was with us as well. Um, so I was the only member of the team that was running that course that was there at the time. And um, 
yeah, it was a it was a scary thing to deal with. But you just have to be rational and prioritise, you know. And we've all done, you know, those of us that lead, we've all done lots of first aid training and lots of other sort of scenario training where, you know, that that just kind of comes into comes into play. And then if you're working with other professionals like the the snow machine guide, he was very good as well. And between, you know, he he was the one who got on the communications because he was Swedish and could communicate you know it would have been fine for us to make the call in English actually but he you know he and there was mobile phone reception because it's Sweden and they've got mobile phone reception everywhere so um, so yeah it, it, those things can happen like that you know we were we would have been back in the back in the where the snow machines were from back having a cup of coffee and a bun in half an hour but we were you know we weren't we were dealing with this situation for quite a long time and um, having to look you've got to remember not to just look after the casualties but you've got to look after the whole group and that was in a cold environment as well the thing that amazed me was that it was getting dark at about half past two quarter to three um, the helicopter landed in pretty much near dark conditions and that was an amazing piece of flying but all the paramedics both the ones that came in from the road and the ones that came out of the helicopter none of them had head torches <laughs> in Sweden in winter, it was amazing. So we had to do all the illumination for them while they looked at these, looked at these guys. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's everything from just spotting signs of people being unwell or becoming a little bit cold, right through to just all of a sudden, bang, you have to deal with things. So I think you just have to. I, I've always been quite calm. The only other incident where I, I was in a car crash when I was eighteen, um, the the girl. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was driving me home and it was it snowed a little bit there was an adverse camera on the road her little fiesta skidded went into the bank like a bank turned over and then we went down the road on our side a little country road in the middle of nowhere in the north of England um, she was hysterical I was like fine okay right she was hanging from a seatbelt above me I was like okay I'll hold you you undo your seatbelt get out because I was concerned the car was going another car was going to come around and hit us that was just like we need to get out the car so get her out and I climbed out and then we stood off the road and basically made sure nobody else hit the car you know yeah. so um but I've always you know I've always just seemed to be able to stay relatively calm in those situations and um and I think training on top of that helps as well so yeah. To go back to your original question, yeah, morale is definitely important to keep morale high, keep people keep people occupied keep as well. Busy. Yeah. yeah. Um, th but they might be thinking about we're in a really sticky situation. Yes. Yeah. 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 You want to keep them under control. You want to you want to use them as well. You know, you don't just try and take the whole situation on yourself. It's like you guys are all capable. You know, I could. You know, if something happened, even here, I could say. You know, Steve, could you get us the first aid kit? I just told you where it was earlier. It's in the yeah. store tent, just on the right-hand side. Could you go and get? Could somebody else go and um, go and find spoons? He's collecting firewood over the back. You know, and you know, I would make use of people like that. You know, I might need somebody to go to the road to to flag down an ambulance, to bring in an ambulance crew. All of those things. You know, the more people, the better, really, as long as the communication is is there. And I think the other thing we've done a lot of scenario training around that sort of thing, haven't we, spoons? Uh, and Matt, you know, we've done lots of stuff here and elsewhere. And I think the, the thing always to remember there is if I send somebody to the road to, to meet an ambulance, um, how do I communicate with them? How long do they stay there before they come back? If the ambulance doesn't, you, you need to kind of think about those things, the what ifs as well. Those are important because going back to earlier questions, things can escalate. 
you know, if, if you, you don't want things to go from being slightly lost to being, you know, or being a bit hypothermic to being lost to being more hypothermic to not getting home that night to being left out on the hills. You know, things can escalate, and it's the same in any situation. You can you can kind of keep control of it and make the situation better, or it can be like just a, a cascade of things, more things going wrong. They injure themselves on the way over there. He gets lost going to find spoons. You know, you need you need to kind of think about that on your feet. So yeah. that's and that's that, the. And that can happen. I mean, it can happen with three or four friends just going on a. A walk for a weekend yeah on it where something goes wrong and uh, you've got to deal with it yeah absolutely you deal with it. absolutely and i think i think it's always sensible to think about not not that what happens if aliens land and abduct dave and you know it's, it's you know the the, the the within the reasonable bounds of possibility what might go wrong you know what are the risk factors you know hypothermia getting lost and not being able to get back to the car for the, you know if you're out for the day you know what are we going to be able to do about that what are we what we're going to take with us to deal with that what's the who do we communicate with who's expecting us back yeah. what are they going to do if i don't get back am i going to expect somebody to be looking for me if we've thought about that and it doesn't it doesn't need to be a massively long extraneous sort of process you know pain it's just we can have a quick think about it you know it's like there's any you know if you it's often the case that we might agree as a group of six guys to go for a walk, but does anybody actually know we've gone for a walk up Snowden or whatever it is, you know, yeah. wherever we are? And it's important to remember that y you feel like there's a strength in numbers. You know, if you go on your own for a hike, you probably do tell somebody where you're going. If you go as a two, a two or a three or a four or five, maybe you don't because you think there's somebody there to look after you, but you still should tell somebody where you're going um, for the same reasons because you might all need some help. Um, the other thing as well that I've heard, heard you know, a few times from search and rescue personnel is three or four guys on the hillside in the mountains in the UK, somebody gets injured, somebody goes to get help, can't remember where they are because didn't really pay attention they just sort of ran down the hill going help I need help I need help phone for help get help and then they're like yeah they're on that hill somewhere but I don't remember you know yeah. so it's it's yeah. just think you know where are they you know how do I get back to them how do I get back to them if it's dark by the time yeah. you know we get we get some help all of those things sort of think about um, and unfortunately a lot of people don't think about it until they they're in the middle of it and they go oh yeah I should have yeah. should have thought about that you know so yeah. So contingencies and plan A, plan B, plan C, yeah. those those sorts of things are important. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> Any other questions? I, and he wants to go to bed. <laughs> he's, 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 he's got to bed now. <laughs> No, no, sorry. But the, the kind of uh, Desert Island disc question for mm -hmm. Paul Kirby. Um, just say that you've got a 30 litre pack, and if you get us up too early in the morning, we might deposit you on a Desert Island. Right. <laughs> and and um, you're deposited on a Desert Island on your own with everything that you can fit in a 30 litre pack to help you survive, um, plus maybe a luxury item. And of course, you've got the full works of Shakespeare and the Bible, which you're allowed. Right. What would you put in your 30 litre pack? What would I put in my 30 So it's a tropical desert island. Yeah, yeah. we'll make it a tropical one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, a, some sort of machete or parang would be yeah. primary choice. And um, 
some form of probably hammock shelter something like that to get up off the ground um, I think it would be a useful thing to have in there and a, and a tarp because if it's tropical it's probably gonna have a rainy season so yeah. Yeah. tarp and a hammock and a, and a uh, ML, for, well, no, a, a yeah. machete would be, well, yeah, parang would be all right. Just, just opening okay, coconuts okay. and right. chopping down, yeah. chopping down. So uh, not a separate knife. You don't think you'd need them. I'm not sure how much use it would be in that environment. To be honest mm. with you, I mean, it's always, you know, if you're offering it to me, I'd take it. But yeah. uh, well, is it fits in your fertility? Yeah, <laughs> but no. But the primary thing would be a, a parang or a machete. Um, that would be the primary tool. Um, a bit of shelter, um, maybe some a little a little bit of nourishment for immediate food, but probably more importantly some fishing kit. I would say some yeah. fishing kit for being on an island, do some good fishing. Um, wondering whether I'd whether I'd be sneaky and take a net, take a net, hammock, tarp, fishing net, parang. That'd probably do you, wouldn't it? water bottle yeah. um it depends whether or not there's a fresh water source on the island as well that's the yeah. thing yeah don't know about that yeah so you might might need some sort of desalination device yeah. otherwise you'd be yeah you'd be in some difficulty so again yeah i mean a tarp would be useful for capturing rainwater if it was in rainy season if it wasn't yeah. it might be a bit stuffed yeah, so because yeah. you can only drink so much coconut juice before you get shit so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um so yeah it, it it would depend exactly on the circumstances but um so if that's your survival kit what luxury would you take what luxury i would probably take my 160 gig ipod right. that i have <laughs> with music and podcasts and you know audio books and things on yeah and a solar charger yeah. <laughs> that would be. be all that has for currently podcasts no. No, 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 we haven't done that many yet. We haven't done that many yet. Um, no, I just, uh, I, I like to listen to music. And so I think if I was on my own, that would that'd help yeah. me keep, uh, yeah, keep. You know, I think yeah, you can you can pack an awful lot. Shame they don't make them anymore. You can pack an awful lot onto those. Yeah. Little uh, 160 gig iPods. Mine's only half full and it's got tons of stuff on it. Okay. Yeah, that would be. I think that would be it. I think, um, as long as I could have audio books on there as well, because I think, you know, I, I do like to read, but I would be happy, you know, if I could have a few sort of stories on there and a few things to listen yeah. to. So. so somebody I heard on the Desert Island Dish on the radio, so a luxury item would be a laptop with a full-time Wi-Fi connection. Seems a bit cheap. And an, another one was the girlfriend. All right. Um, but then he then he thought, no, maybe my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think either of those would be uh, somewhat put out by being considered an item, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thanks, no, Paul. No, cool. Good question. Good question. All right. Are we good? Well, I've worn them out. I think they're all. Yeah. I'm amazed at how, I have to say I'm amazed at that weather. Yeah. I'm not just saying this for the camera, I am genuinely amazed that when we were putting the cameras up, we've got plastic bags taped over that one, you know, we've got a plastic bag over the top of that yeah. recording device over there. Um, we were trying to keep the rain and smoke out of everything to start off with, everything was blown around and it's 
pretty much dead. It's gone, still it? now. Yeah, and it's not raining. It's not moving. Parachute's well, not moving. We'll keep this week. Yeah, so it's probably a good time to to move to to tarps or shelters or wherever you yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to be. So. Thank you very much for your questions, guys. Appreciate that, and thank you for being there. The one thing we haven't done is you get the kettle. Do you know? Are you aware of the kettle? Uh, yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh my God, one of you guys, could you run and get the uh, come and get the kettle? Because mm. we did say the first person to book, having watched the previous Ask Paul Kirtley, it was such an kettle. incentive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, I'm aware of the kettle. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I'm here. <laughs> it should be engraved. Oh come on. Yeah, so no, cool. No, it's been it's been good. It's an interesting experiment. We'll see how it yeah. Yeah. see how people enjoy it. Oh you're not bringing the box? You bring the box. I need the box. The I need to have it signed by the great yeah. man. <laughs> we'll use the box tomorrow to lead the fire. Oh, well, that's what, what you do with it once you've got it, it's up Sorry, to you. <laughs> Put the kettle on the fire, not the box. That's mm. how it works. I need the box below the kettle. <laughs> there it is, got the box. It's the one and only. Cheers. There we go, Ash. Thank you very much. Oh. One 2.5 litre Kirtley cup. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, on behalf of my manager and. <laughs> 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 right, cheers. Uh, Thank you. Received. Excellent. Thank you. No, good. Enjoy. Yeah, hopefully, it doesn't stay that shiny for long. Not a chance. No. Excellent. That's great. Good. Excellent. Good. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thanks for the questions. Thanks thank for you. listening. Thanks for staying up. It's been good. Thank you everyone for watching. Hopefully you've enjoyed a slightly different version of Ask Paul Kirtley and I will see you on the next one very soon. Cheers. <laughs> we do some animals. <laughs> we can do you some animals like a okay, oh, Mr. Paul <laughs> Yeah, I'm taking all of them. You what? I'm glad it was you that kicked that. I didn't kick it, I just caught the uh, uh, the handle. The handle. The handle. So you guys are all on that camera. <coughs> you don't need to look at that camera, but just so you know, you're all included in that camera. So that's that's not picking you now. <coughs> Good, right. I just need to sync. You know what clapper boards are for? On phones. <coughs> yeah. Synchronize the sound and the yeah and the uh, and the video. Okay, synchronization. Ready? Yeah. Questions ready? Yeah. <laughs> Nervous giggling? Yes. Good. So welcome to episode. What episode are we on, guys? 23? 23. 23. Welcome to. <laughs> I'm going to giggle. I'm not used to having an audience, so I need to go and do it in the woods on my own. You should leave that one in. Yeah. These are these are the outtakes at the end. We good spins?
Welcome to episode 23 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I'm joined by some new friends. 